relationships matter. And if you're going to be successful in life, uh, relationships matter uh, everywhere. And relationships matter in a way that uh, it isn't about the relationships that you create for those that you worked for, and not even just those that maybe have worked directly for you. It's all relationships. So one of the things I've learned is, you know, no matter who you come in contact with, you got to treat everybody uh, fairly with dignity and respect and never underestimate anybody. Hello, visionaries, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all types. Hi, my name is John Miles, and I wanted to welcome you to this episode of the Passion Start Podcast, where it is my job to interview high achievers from all walks of life and unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck. The purpose of our show is to serve you, the listener, by giving you lessons, tools, and activities that you can use to achieve a passion-driven life. Now, let the journey begin. Today, we have the distinct honor of interviewing Vice Admiral Ted Carter, the current president of the University of Nebraska. But before I get into the interview and more background about our guest, I'm going to start off with a quote from General of the Army's John J. Pershing, who is an esteemed graduate of both West Point and the University of Nebraska, who said, a competent leader can get efficient service from poor troops, while on the contrary, an incapable leader can demoralize the best of troops. And I think that is a great lead-in to today's guest. And on our show, we are going to talk about President Ted Carter's rise from the Naval Academy and the lessons he learned there to becoming a fighter pilot and going to Top Gun, who is time on The Price is Right, to now leading the University of Nebraska and its student body of over 50 thousand students across their different campuses. He's going to give his words and inspiration on so many topics, and you don't want to miss any of this interview. Ted Carter became the eighth president of the University of Nebraska on January 1st, 2020, following a national search by the Board of Regents. President Carter leads the University of Nebraska and its four campuses. He is the university's chief executive officer and reports to the Board of Regents, who are elected to govern the university. As president, Carter leads a four-campus university system that enrolls nearly 52,000 students and employs 16,000 faculty and staff on campuses in Lincoln, Omaha, and Kearney, plus academic divisions and research and extension centers across the state. He serves as chief spokesman and chief executive officer for the system, which operates on a $2.8 billion annual budget and includes a flagship Big Ten institution, a world-renowned academic health sciences center, division one athletics program, and preeminent institutes focused on water and agriculture, national security and defense, infectious disease, and early childhood education. Ted Carter brought with him a distinguished record in education partnerships and military service, having come to Nebraska from the U.S. Naval Academy, his alma mater, where he served as superintendent for an unprecedented five years. Under his leadership, the Naval Academy achieved a number one national ranking and new records in student success and diversity. Carter was previously president of the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. He is a retired vice admiral with 38 years of service and has logged more than 6,300 flying hours and holds the American record for carrier arrested landings. He is a graduate of the Navy Fighter Weapons School otherwise known as Top Gun, and holds educational credentials from the Navy Nuclear Power School, the U.S. Army War College, and the Navy War College, and the Armed Forces Staff College. Carter works as a team with his wife, Linda, and they have been married for 37 years. So much to learn from this truly amazing guest, and I can't wait to introduce him to you. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to today's episode of the Passion Struck Podcast, and I am so excited to have with us Nebraska President Ted Carter on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here, and I thought since we're both Naval Academy graduates, an applicable place to start this interview would be to go back in time and ask you, what was that step that caused you to go to the Naval Academy instead of going to another university? Well, yeah, it's it's ancient history, actually. I mean, dating back to uh, 1976, when I first met a midshipman from my neighboring hometown, to come to my uh, one high school that was in my, the town I grew up in, in rural Rhode Island. 
and I was so impressed uh, uh, with him. Uh, Matt Elias is his name. And uh, so I had in this idea that the Naval Academy was this amazing place that somebody could, anybody could go to from all over the country. I had applied to a whole bunch of other schools like Brown and Harvard and St. Louis and Georgetown. And at the end of the day, I ended up getting into Brown and to uh, the Naval Academy uh, my senior year in high school. And it was a really big decision. I didn't have a lot of military in my family at all. My dad's oldest brother served in World War II, but didn't have anything in my immediate family. So I took a chance and I took a chance uh, into the unknown to go to a place like the Naval Academy not really knowing what I was getting into. Uh, and I, and I, as a superintendent, I got to see a lot of, you know, faces and big eyeballs that would show up on induction day that were in that exact same position, uh, which uh, I think that's part of the story of my whole life is uh, I've tried and gone into things that I really wasn't sure what it was going to be. Uh, and you just give it your best. And that's, that's how I entered into the Naval Academy. Well, that's great. I, I had a tiny bit of a different story, only that I grew up about 45 minutes from the academy. And so anytime we had a relative in town, I would go with my parents and we would take them there. And, and growing up, and especially uh, when we would go in the summer and you'd hear the poor midshipmen getting uh, yelled at, I would always tell my parents, there's no way I'm going to go. And <laughs> uh, similar to you, I, I also got into Brown and a number of other schools, but decided to take the plunge as you did. And looking at it uh, and that experience, what do you think was the most important thing that uh, you came away from with your Naval Academy experience? Well, I'd say a couple things. First of all, Plebe Summer was transformative for me, mainly because uh, it was that time we realized you can't really do anything on your own. It's It's all being part of a team. But also, you had to deliver yourself. I mean, you know, just the the whole discipline of being a plebe and and doing things and uh, knowing all your responsibilities, learning how to be a follower. That was an important piece for me. And then opportunity. Uh, You know, I got an opportunity to play on the, you know, the club ice hockey team. I got an opportunity to be on the Log Magazine staff, you know, to pick your academic major. You know, all those things were opportunities that I just quite honestly, uh, didn't see as something that I would be doing. But those are the things that I did when I was at the Naval Academy. And those those turned into leadership opportunities. I was a captain of the hockey team in my senior year in 1981. And then I ended up being the editor of the Log Magazine my last two years at the Naval Academy. So uh, I got tremendous amount of opportunity at turn from followership to leadership while I was at the Naval Academy. Yeah, so that's another thing we have in common. We're both hockey players, and uh, I think my parents put a my first pair of skates on me when I was three or four years old growing up in New York and then the Midwest. But what do you think, because we were both varsity athletes, what do you think are some of the most important lessons you learned from being a varsity athlete that carried forward and how you became the leader you are today? I give everything that uh, I got in terms of leadership and learning how to perform uh, and high intensity, I call it sport, that turns into real life from playing on the ice hockey team at Navy. And I, it's one of the reasons I'm such a big uh, supporter of uh, all athletics at, uh, at every level, uh, whether it be at Annapolis or even at a place here like uh, Nebraska, because of uh, how much it shaped me, how much it uh, matured me. Uh, again, this idea that you're playing for something bigger than yourself individually uh, that the sum of all the parts turns into something much, much greater uh, than uh, than even what the whole could be. And I was inspired by the captains that uh, played before me. I got a lot out of watching them, how they they ran the team. Uh, that helped shape the, my own way and that I wanted to lead. And I believed in uh, this idea of empowering. You know, I didn't have to be the best player on the ice. I didn't have to be, you know, the expert in the room of any time a big decision was being made, uh, how to work collaboratively so that you get to the best outcome. That's great. And I'm not sure if while you were there, they were doing this, but uh, when I was there in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, when the Capitals would play opposing teams, sometimes they would allow that team to practice at Dahlgren Hall. And I remember marveling at those players because to see college hockey and then see NHL players is truly night and day, but we would always hate it because they would come and totally tear up the ice and it would take them <laughs> a week to, to fix it. But I saw that speaking of professional hockey, you had 
a unique experience to drop the puck in a special event. And I was wondering if you could go into that experience a little bit and what it meant to you. Yeah, we were uh, we played host to the uh, the Winter Classic uh, that was between the Washington Capitals the same year they won the Stanley Cup, by the way, uh, against the Toronto Maple Leafs. The game was in March. It was actually cold. We did it at the football stadium at the Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium. The NHL fell in love with Annapolis. The whole NHL administration, from the you know from the commissioner to those that ran uh, the TV uh, uh, show itself fell in love with our stadium. We sold it out. We had, you know, the Olympic curling gold medal team there, the women's Olympic gold medal team there. It was a spectacle. I'm, it was no kidding, a Super Bowl level event. Uh, the Capitals ended up winning the game. Uh, the uh, gold medal curlers pushed the puck out to center ice on a stone. It landed right in the middle of center ice. And then I got to take the puck off the stone and drop the puck it was just a surreal uh, event uh, across the board. And, and the Washington Capitals brought the Stanley Cup to the Naval Academy that I brought out in T Court in front of the plebes just to tie it all together. And it was just, you know, one of those life moments that you're never going to forget. Uh, what an amazing experience. And it's one of my favorite sporting events of the year because growing up playing pond hockey, it's the truest thing I can see to how I grew up as a kid experiencing hockey. And I know, I think I remember watching that game and you didn't have to deal with snow and some of the other elements that I've seen in other winter class classics, but I've got to imagine if you got to talk to some of the players, it's probably one of their favorite events as well. We did. I, I went over to our ice rink where the Toronto Maple Leafs practiced. Uh, we didn't have snow. You're right, but we had uh, incredibly high winds, 50 mile an hour winds all the way up to the day of the event. So the the, the professional ice hockey players did not get on the ice until game time, which was really a challenge. But to get to hang out with the TJ Oshie and Alex Ovechkin uh, prior to the game, uh, and then get to talk to all of the uh, the NHL stars that were there, uh, the the thing was broadcast on Hockey Night in Canada, uh, NBC Sports, uh, so a lot of airtime. Uh, the whole thing was just incredible. It was an amazing event. Did any of the professional athletes say anything to you about their experience from seeing the Naval Academy that you took away from that? Absolutely. Uh, the general manager from uh, Toronto, uh, member of one of the greatest American players, uh, Matthews was on Toronto at the time. Uh, he came out uh, after being on the ice and came over and talked to me and just said how much they were blown away by the experience. They got a lot of engagement with the, with the brigade. Uh, we had a huge section of the brigade at the game. Uh, you know, they built a mock aircraft carrier in the center of the football field, and they put the ice rink on top of it. And we had the midshipmen actually come out through the tunnel and kind of do a, a mock man the rails as the players came out. I mean, it, it's worth anybody that ever wants to go on YouTube and look at it. There's a shortened version of all the highlights of the game. It's really eye candy. Wow. I, I will have to go back and do that. And I'd encourage all the listeners or watchers of this podcast to go and do it as well, because from what I remember, it was just an incredible event and one of the best winter classics that there is. Well, for the listeners who are out there who don't know um, a lot about your background, typically a superintendent does a two to three year tour as the superintendent, which would be the equivalent of the president of a major university. And in your case, the Secretary of the Navy, as I understand it, asked you to do a few more years. So I think outside of one other superintendent, you have spent more time in that position before your current one than than any previous leader. Is that correct? Yeah, you have that uh, pretty, pretty correct, John. Chuck Larson uh, did two tours, a four-year tour as a three-star, and then came back as a four-star uh, after the cheating scandal uh, in 1993 and served another three-year tour. So he did seven years total but I served five years continuously, which is the longest continuous time in, in, the, in the seat, if you will. A lot of people may not be aware that when you become the superintendent in the modern era, and I'm saying now over the last 20, 25 years, uh, you're expected to retire from that position so that you're not trying to compete or, or wait out the clock to go to some other uh, position as a flag officer. So I, I was relatively young as a superintendent, and uh, the chief of naval operations, John Richardson, and the secretary of the Navy asked me to stay on a little bit longer, uh, which I was happy to do. It's an exhausting position just because of all the interactions you do with Congress, uh, with the alumni. 
but I loved it and my wife loved it. And we, uh, we stayed there five years. I'm not sure that's a natural act. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure it's for everybody, but uh, it worked out well for us. And can you tell the listeners who aren't familiar with the Academy why that position is so challenging? Well, I mean, there are three major service academies, West Point for the Army, Air Force Academy out at Colorado Springs. But because of our proximity to Washington, D.C., 33 miles, uh, we are the, the service academy that gets uh, visited the most uh, by far by anybody in Washington, D.C. And many of the members of Congress, uh, whether they be in the House or the Senate, uh, they would not likely go to the more remote areas up in West Point, an hour north of New York City or out to Colorado Springs. They'd come to the Naval Academy. So I spent multiple visits a week hosting uh, members of Congress so that they could you know, help shape who they were going to nominate to send to their various service academies. And they looked to us to be kind of their gold standard for what a service academy would be. And not that the other service academies don't have passionate alumni, but I would tell you ours at the Naval Academy is a step above. 60,000 plus living alumni is uh, typically around the number that we have. And uh, keeping them up to speed, talking to them, whether it be uh, their visits for home football games, or just around the year uh, is totally, totally involved. We, uh, we hosted things at Buchanan House, the, uh, the home of the superintendent at a very high rate. Uh, it's the second most visited house in the entire Department of Defense. Uh, I had no I idea. Have, I have the data to prove that. Uh, we hosted over 70,000 people in our home uh, over the course of my time there. Uh, and you know, graduation week, commissioning week is its own thing. Uh, I called it the 10,000 handshake week. Uh, because that's how many uh, handshakes I would do typically during commissioning week between, you know, seeing, you know, five guests for every graduating senior that would actually come to the house, uh, hosting the Blue Angels events, the parades, and then, of course, graduation itself. So, you know, you just have to be comfortable being out front, being in the public eye at a whole nother level. And, and then, of course, engaging with the brigade. I mean, that's an opportunity and a chance to really helps shape their future leadership uh, vision by getting a chance to be with them. And, you know, not every superintendent embraced that. Uh, I chose to do that. So I spent a lot of time, not just at sporting events, but a chance to engage at the company level, uh, to go to different leadership talks. Uh, I actually enjoyed that probably as much as anything I did. Well, I know not to the extreme that you experienced, but I, my last tour when I was on active duty, I was at, at that time was called JADF East. Now it's called Joint Interagency Task Force South. And we had basically a similar phenomenon because it was in Key West. We had so many visiting dignitaries that every single weekend we would give flag briefings. Um, and for me, it was a great experience because as a Lieutenant junior grade, I got to brief Secretary of the Army, of the Navy, a vice president, tons of flag officers, CIA, brass, FBI operatives, et cetera. So, but as I can very well vouch, it does get uh, tiring once you do it uh, time and time again. And it's uh, a never stopping process because they were there every weekend. So I do appreciate what, what you're saying. So you mentioned Admiral Larson and that cheating scandal. And fortunately or unfortunately, I had a very first-hand experience in that because not only was I a midshipman at the time, I was on the brigade honor staff and had to proceed over those um, honor boards. And I know since that time, there have been a number of changes um, that have taken place that if some alumni of either the Naval Academy or other service academies, um, I, I know some of the other service academies have made similar changes. But when we were there, um, it was pretty black and white. Uh, if you broke the honor code, you were expelled. And I understand today it's changed in that um, if you commit an honor offense, there are procedures in place that give people a second chance. And I was hoping you might be able to describe that change and why it came about. Sure. So when I got there, uh, I had a sense, and, and this is sometimes maybe a more of a lesson in how to avert a crisis. I mean, it's in the news now. I mean, West Point just uh, had a you know largest cheating scandal they've had probably in 50 years. I wasn't sure that we weren't ripe for that to happen again when I showed up uh, in 2014 as a superintendent. 
I looked at the honor concept as it was written when I took over as superintendent, and I realized that uh, it was in need of something uh, maybe to be more modernized uh, that would resonate with the midshipmen of then, that today. We embarked on a full-scale look at it. I was very fortunate. Uh, Vice Admiral retired Jim Satterholm, who is, uh, I want to say, class of 53. Bill Lawrence, who was my superintendent, who had passed away. And Ross Perot, who was still alive when I came uh, in as superintendent. They were really considered to be kind of the founders of the honor code or concept. Uh, I spent time with both Ross Perot and uh, Jim Satterholm to talk to them about how how they visualized what the honor concept would be when it was put in. I mean, the uh, the honor code really goes all the way back to really about the 1900s, uh, early 1900s at the Naval Academy. So we went and looked at making sure we understood the difference between a code versus concept. As you point out, code is more black and white. Uh, concept is more uh, about uh, what it is that you're intending to do. In other words, uh, motivating midshipmen to want to embrace this uh, this ideal of not lying, cheating, or stealing. So when I took over, the, the concept was in place, but we rewrote the concept so that it was more of a motivational way of life that would set midshipmen on a course to take this on for the rest of their Navy and Marine Corps career. Now, this idea of you know, being able to have some sort of a small mistake, this idea that you could be corrected should you have a mistake early on, was actually in the very first concept uh, in the 1950s. And a lot of people don't know that. So I did it was, not know that. Yeah, it was never really, <clears throat> really intended to be pure black and white. Uh, but we tried to categorize it a little bit better. In other words, you could make a mistake up to a certain point that uh, might not have been viewed as intentional as a plebe, less so as a youngster. But by the time you're a junior or senior, there's no more wiggle room there. There's no more place for you to be rehabilitated, if you will. And that was kind of the guidance that we took. Now, did I kick out plebes for honor concept violations? Absolutely. Uh, If you were uh, shoplifting, I had a couple of cases like that. Uh, We didn't have a lot of tolerance for that. So I guess what I'm telling you is every case stood on its own merit. Uh, Did we have large swaths of midshipmen cheating on a professional exam? No, that did not happen during my time. And I would tell you because of the way the brigade and the honor chair and the rest of the midshipmen embraced and took ownership of this, they wanted to make it their own. And that's how I saw this thing really start to take root and be better. Again, it was an empowering way to say, hey, Brigade of Midshipmen, this is your honor concept. You know, we in administration will be the adjudicators of it at some point. And every time I had to deal with an honor case uh, in my office, you know, at that final stage after somebody went through that, I put tremendous amount of weight and what the midshipmen stripers would say to me in terms of how to adjudicate. And oftentimes their uh, their input to me was not what the rest of the chain of command said, not what the company officer said or the battalion officer, or even what the commandant recommended. I wanted the midshipmen to own the concept. Uh, and maybe that's uh, the, my own personal mark that I put on it while I was there. Well, that's some great background. And in many ways, I wish at the time I was there, we had something similar to that. Because one of the hardships that I thought of of going through when I did was there were two midshipmen who were actually at the top of their class who came forward and I thought did a very honorable thing by bringing to the authorities that this large double cheating, electrical engineering cheating exam had taken place. And unfortunately, instead of kind of being applauded for doing the right thing and coming forward, they were both dismissed. And then it unfortunately spiraled out of out of control after that. But I don't want to go down that rabbit hole today. Uh, what I prefer to do is, is kind of do a segue between now that you're the president of the University of Nebraska system, how is the honor code there, the way you would apply it different from what it would be at service academy? Or are you taking a similar approach? Yeah, this is a this is a monster institution. So uh, I lead four campuses. Uh, the flagship is the uh, University of Nebraska, the Cornhuskers. What uh, that's a campus most people would resonate with. Uh, you know, five-time national champions in football. Uh, one of the most iconic football stadiums in all football. Memorial Stadium holds ninety thousand. Been sold out since nineteen sixty-two. So people in Nebraska love their football. 
but we have three other fantastic campuses, a rural campus out in Kearney, which is in the middle of the state, founded as a teacher's college, a metropolitan campus in Omaha, which is also a fantastic uh, STEM-based school and uh, welcomes many, many more minorities than uh, most any other school here in the Midwest. And then a medical center uh, that is a medical school uh, in Omaha as well. So it's 52,000 students as a, uh, as a system, about 16,000 faculty and staff. And I would tell you that uh, they embrace the honor concept here. Uh, that is uh, well written into a lot of their strategy and how they run on their campuses. And the, the student body government leaders are very engaged here. It's kind of like the six striper, uh, you know, brigade commander at the Naval Academy. And they are on our board, the board of regents. So uh, the board of regents is 12 members, eight publicly elected and four student body leaders. Uh, and we are involved in uh, driving and making policy and fiduciary oversight. So it's really a fascinating leadership challenge to run a system like this. But again, it's not top down, it's bottom up, which to me is similar to the way the Naval Academy, one of the reasons it's always been so successful. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. So for you, um, leaving the service, uh, were you looking for this opportunity at Nebraska or how did it come about? Well, the truth is, and just like I went into aviation, just like I wanted in the nuclear power program and a lot of things that happened to me in my life to include uh, going to the Naval Academy as the superintendent, uh, they found me. Uh, I had already signed on for another job with a software company after I retired in 2019. My wife, Linda, and I were on a kind of retirement vacation, and uh, I got a call from a, a search company that was uh, charged with finding a talent to apply for this job. And they convinced me after they wrote this, uh, they call it the nine pillars of leadership, somebody that they were looking for to run the university. And when they showed those to me, I was inspired by what they were looking for. I would say I'm a bit of a non-traditional university president. I don't have a PhD. I don't come from academia, even though I ran the Naval War College and I ran the Naval Academy for my last active duty years. Uh, they were looking for a change agent and somebody that could run the institution, not necessarily go be a tenured professor, you know, on one of the campuses. So from the moment I interviewed to the day I was selected as the priority candidate was less than 30 days. I mean, it happened really fast. Wow. It's kind of like becoming a head coach in a major sporting league. They seem to happen just like that, but it's not how it happens normally in the business or academic world. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I became the president on 1 January in 2020. So obviously, when I came into this job, uh, there was nothing about a global pandemic. Uh, the first word of things coming out of Wuhan, China, uh, occurred about uh, three to four weeks later. And so the, the majority of my tenure here as University of Nebraska system president has been working through a global pandemic. Well, I was doing some research on that uh, to get prepared for this interview and I saw you took some pretty amazing steps. Uh, one of them was, I think, 
curtailing um, enrollment fees for a couple of years, if I have it right, which ended up having kind of an unexpected result of allowing more and more underprivileged students to come to the university. I'm wondering if I have that correct and if you could explain that in some more detail. So once I got a sense of how big uh, this pandemic was going to be, and that was somewhere around uh, early March, like every other major university in the country, we had to go uh, remote right away to just try to protect our students, our faculty and staff. But I realized this wasn't going to go away. And uh, for us to be successful in completing our mission, which is to educate not just Nebraskans, but people all over the world, uh, we had to take some bold steps. And I equated some of the steps that we took to uh, being in high-end intensity combat. You know, even in a uh, you know, globalized world where you've got a ton of information, a whole bunch of intelligence, once you actually go into a combat mission, there's still the fog of war. And we were dealing with the fog of COVID. We didn't have perfect information. We weren't getting information from it. And I had, you know, the medical center. I mean, some of the, the best experts in the world who were part of our campus and advising us. So we did. We made some very bold initiatives in May of last year, uh, one of which, as you alluded to, was to uh, give free tuition to all those who make $60,000 or less uh, here in the state of Nebraska, which is uh, the majority of the population. Uh, we froze tuition for everybody for two years. Uh, we changed the academic calendar so we would minimize travel. Uh, I reduced the cost of online education significantly by 9% uh, because I knew wow. more people would want uh, online education. So we were doing the exact opposites of what we had always historically done in the midst of an economic crisis, as well as a, a medical and global pandemic. We actually reduced cost instead of uh, transferring the cost to students and others. And the result was we grew in enrollment. We were the only uh, major university in the Midwest that grew our enrollment last year. How much of a difference did that make, do you think, in the way the population in Nebraska saw the university and in how people, you know, how that's changed the whole dynamics of the student body? Yeah, we are such a centerpiece of the entire state of Nebraska. I mean, I talked about you know, being in the public eye when I was the superintendent of the Naval Academy, this is to that level and maybe even a little bit more. I mean, Nebraska is an agricultural state. 90% of the entire landmass is farmland or ranches. So that is the number one economic driver of the entire state. But a close second is the university. So to give you a sense, uh, we return about seven and a half dollars for every dollar the state gives us that helps drive the state economy. Uh, it's a rather remarkable uh, institution that that serves the people. And just like the Naval Academy, our centerpiece of athletics, Husker Athletics, does not run one bit on a single dollar from the state. It, it's self-sustaining. It's one of the top 10 financial programs in the country. So people all over the state resonate with the university. We only have one university system in the entire state. There's only one flagship academic institution in the state. And people, you know, are inspired to want to come here. So we have to get it right. And we are also the feeder for most of the, the people that go to work here in the state. So Omaha, you know, a, a, a city that is, uh, you know, a little over 500,000 people and Lincoln, about 250,000 people, you know, those are the two most populous states. And to give you a sense of the, the how sparse the population here is at a home football game in Lincoln, Nebraska, the, the stadium itself is the third largest city in the state with 90,000 people. So, you know, you've got to get a sense of yourself and understand that uh, how the university goes, so goes the entire state of Nebraska. Wow, that's that really puts it in perspective. And I am going to have to go to football just for a second, because those who live, I'm in Tampa Bay, and those who live around this area we're not so happy when Nebraska took a coach away from the University of Central Florida who had done such an amazing job there. And I grew up as a huge Michigan fan, and now Nebraska is a inner Big Ten rival. Um, what, what should fans of Nebraska see in the future from this team? Because I, I think you've actually got one of the best coaches in the country leading it now. Well, John, I, I would agree with you. And uh, while I was superintendent at the Naval Academy, uh, I got to watch Coach Scott Frost uh, take UCF, University of Central Florida, from a winless season and two years later make a run as an undefeated team in the American Athletic Conference. And, and let's face it, the American Athletic Conference has really good football. We're talking 
you know, Temple, Memphis, Houston, Central Florida, South Florida, and Navy, of which in a year, there's two or three of those teams that are in the top 25. When Navy was getting ready to play Central Florida during that undefeated season, Scott Frost was 40 years old. He played scout quarterback and preparing Central Florida to take on Navy because they weren't going to be ready to, to play against an option team like Navy was. But Scott had run the option when he was quarterback at Nebraska when he graduated in 97. So he prepared his team himself as the coach, a player coach. Wow. And that was probably the toughest game Central Florida had. In fact, we had a chance to win the game on the last possession and they took the ball away from us. So um, I got to meet Scott Frost that day and I was impressed with him. And then, boom, here we go. I show up in Nebraska. He's already been hired here. He's now in his fourth year. Uh, we've been in a bit of a rebuilding era here. Uh, we haven't had a winning season uh, during his era just yet. I would tell you, I'm very optimistic that this will be the year that Scott will turn the program around. He's got a great quarterback uh, this year in Martinez. Uh, we've got a fantastic returning defense. But as you point out, we play in the Big Ten and Nebraska has arguably the number one most difficult college football schedule in the country this year because we're playing Oklahoma this year. Who's going oh, to be season number two for the 50th anniversary of what what is called the game of the century, uh, and we're going to play that down in uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma, uh, at Oklahoma's home stadium. So it'll be a, a really challenging year just because of the schedule. Uh, we always play Ohio State. You know, we're playing Wisconsin, we're playing Iowa. So there are no layup games at all for Nebraska, but. It's a passionate fan base. They only care about winning here, and Scott Frost is all about winning. So we're going to get there. Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one coaching benefited from better work performance, increased communication skills, and overall better relationships? And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development coaching and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource to help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you, only they've had a coach along the way. And we've got that covered too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges, execute on their passion journeys, and get predictable results time and time again. Go to passionstruck.com slash coaching right now and let's get igniting. Well, I'm gonna switch gears on you a little bit and go to some stories from your military career. And I'm gonna start with one of my own. When I got out of the service, I had the opportunity to work for a great company called Booz Allen. And I happened to be attending a conference in San Diego where um, I was based at the time. And upon taking a break, I saw uh, a gentleman who had a Corvette jacket on. And at the time, I had always been a, a huge fan of muscle cars. And so I went up and we started talking about Corvettes. And as we got to talking, he, he turned out to be the civilian top instructor at uh, the Navy Weapons uh, Fighter School, uh, Top Gun, uh, Wayne Hamiloff. And it ended up turning about a year later into a $15 million contract for Booz Allen, which I got to lead. Uh, which was building something called Strike Fighter Online. And you were still pretty much in the infancy of Top Gun when you went through. Can you talk about uh, what the program was like and how it's changed over the years since you went through that sure. game yeah. program? So a lot of people will ask me, you know, at what point in your life did you realize that the Navy was truly a career? And I was very fortunate, you know, in my first squadron, I was flying the F-4 Phantom uh, as a radar intercept officer, backseater in the F-4 at the end of its uh, operational life on board the USS Midway, that museum that's out in San Diego Harbor right now. Uh, and it was a 35-year-old uh, aircraft carrier, you know, in the early 80s. Remember, this is a ship that was built in World War II. So I got to go to Top Gun uh, while I was a 25-year-old lieutenant in that squadron. And, and again, the competition to go to Top Gun was very intense. You only sent one crew, a pilot and a radar intercept officer per year. Every class at Top Gun then uh, was uh, made up of eight fighter jets. 
So eight crews, and it was a five-week program. It was, again, very intense. I had uh, maybe six or 700 hours in the F-4 Phantom. I was a little bit lower than what the standard was to go to that school because it is graduate-level fighter aviation. But as much as people resonate with the movie or have this perception about what Top Gun is, Top Gun, at the end of the day, was really about how to do teaching and learning uh, and how to analyze what it is that you do so that you can present that in a learning method for others. And that's what I took away from Top Gun. Now, <laughs> funny, I was, while I was there, and again, this was the spring of 85, uh, I was selected in 84. So I was there as Tom Cruise and Tony Edwards and the whole movie cast was showing up to get ready to film. Now, I left before the majority of the movie was done, but then I got to go back to Miramar as an F-14 flight instructor uh, when I finished my tour out in Japan on the Midway. So I got to see Top Gun kind of at the height of its glory days in the mid to late 80s. Uh, and then I came back to Miramar in 1995 as the chief of staff of the fighter wing when we were just about ready to close Miramar for the Navy and turn it over to the Marine Corps. Well, Top Gun was in the middle of that change. So Top Gun moved from Miramar uh, in 1996 to Naval Air Station Fallon. And I would tell you, that's at, that was the time when uh, Top Gun kind of really changed their whole approach. It became much more of a full-length graduate school for strike fighter operations uh, in terms of uh, who we pick to go through there, what it means once you graduate from there. There's a whole different career path now uh, for those that wear the patch and go on to that. But I would tell you this one thing, the one thing that has remained is this idea of becoming you know, a master teacher, educator, and learner uh, once you graduate from there. It's not necessarily to teach you to be the best at dogfighting skills or to be the best you know, precision bomber. Uh, there is some of that in there. You have to learn and become good at your craft, but ultimately it's about becoming uh, the best at understanding teaching and learning. Yes, and we have so much change that's around us now that we're in the fourth industrial revolution and we're seeing a rise of more and more autonomous drivers. You have Airbus making decrees that they're going to limit the pilots in the future to one, and then you have drones and everything else. Do you think there will always be human pilots in the fighter planes, or do you think over time they will become autonomous similar to drones? So this is a great question, John. Uh, when I was uh, the president of the Naval War College, the, the chief of naval operations, uh, Jonathan Greener, actually asked me to write an article for the Navy to be published in proceedings on that very question. <laughs> what is the future of warfighting to look like you know, in the year 2035, 2050? Now, most experts would tell you that you can never really predict anything past two to three years in the future. It's just so many unknowns. But these are the premises that I went on. And I agree with you that, you know, Internet technologies, cyber warfare, remote piloted autonomous uh, weaponry is becoming the thing of the future. We're, we're almost living it now. Uh, precision guided weapons are no longer something that the United States has you know, distinct advantage in almost every adversary that we would uh, go against has something that could go a great length. When I say great length, more than well over 500 miles and go through the window of a building. Uh, GPS technology has allowed that to happen. Different levels of GPS technology out there now, but at the end of the day, you know, the ability to have uh, something that uh, is a pilot or some man in the loop and stand off from a great distance is no longer a specific advantage. So we're going to find our advantages in other ways. But at the end of the day, to get kind of get to your point, I would tell you that the human in the loop part of this is always going to be there. Uh, and what I mean by that is we very well could get to a point where we're launching airplanes off of an aircraft carrier uh, somewhere in the Indian Ocean or, or the South Pacific and tankers and many of the, the missions that had historically had pilots and naval flight officers in it may not be there. Uh, now, does that mean that we won't have anybody in a, that's in a manned cockpit? I think we're going to still have the human in the loop part of that uh, for the next century, whether that be a pilot that serves as a quarterback, maybe in an airplane like an E-2D Delta Hawkeye or maybe in an F-18 version of a, another variant of the Super Hornet that's within a division or a large formation of airplanes that's directing from an airborne platform, or 
even to where now we're so interconnected that a lot of those functions might be happening uh, in the belly of a of a mothership like an aircraft carrier. But at the end of the day, the human in the loop part is important. And I think it's important for us to understand that uh, this element of warfare will never go away. For us to really invest and have an understanding of what it means to put our sons and daughters, our Americans in harm's way, we've got to understand the value of human life. So to become so automated and to lose that perspective could very much change the whole perspective of war. And we ought to be very careful about going down that slippery slope. So there's an ethical part of this type of war fighting. And then there's a technological part to it as well. Uh, and not that we don't want to take advantage of the technology that we could serve to make to our advantage, but we've just got to make sure that we always keep an eye towards the human and the loop aspect. Okay. And I'm thank you for that. And on those lines, um, as a human who's been in the loop on over 6,000 hours of fighter time and the most carrier landings um, of any pilot, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen during your days as a fighter pilot? Oh, gosh. Um, I've got a couple of those. And uh, probably the one that I think is uh, has some interesting leadership lessons in it. And one that maybe people could resonate. Actually, it does not have anything to do with landing on the aircraft carrier. It has to do with taking off from the aircraft carrier. So this was a, a couple weeks into my first command. I was in charge of VF-14 Top Hatters. This was in early 1999. We're in our final workup to go on what is about to be a combat deployment to Kosovo and then uh, into uh, Iraq. My youngest pilot in the squadron was having trouble landing on the aircraft carrier during this final workup phase. He ended up getting through that. And as a reward, I said, he and I would be the first ones to fly off from the USS Theodore Roosevelt to go home and get some, some rest before we would deploy. We were the first airplane off the catapult, off cat number three, off the Roosevelt, uh, we are in our 80th anniversary uh, celebrations of the squadron. VF-14 was founded in 1919, so it's 1999. So we've got this white-tailed F-14 Tomcat painted up with a big red symbol on the tail. And uh, Craig Larson, my young pilot, and I took off. And as we hit the end of the stroke, I knew something was immediately wrong. Uh, we had a fuel pressure light. And as I looked over my shoulder, the whole airplane was engulfed in fuel. Fuel was coming out of wow. every possible orifice in the airplane. And it was it was so thick, I could not see the tails of the Tomcat from the back seat. And by the time we figured out what was going on, we were basically leaking fuel out of one half of all of the fuel systems and burning both engines fuel from the right side, but it was all trapped. We couldn't transfer anything. And we were now uh, at a point where we were going to run out of fuel uh, in about eight minutes. We couldn't get back to Oceana. We were over 100 miles away. Couldn't even get to Kitty Hawk, which was another airfield or Elizabeth City that we might have been able to land in. So we made a decision from about 50 miles out that we were going to have to ditch and hopefully get as close to the shore. It was February, so the water temperature was really cold. You know, we were just hoping we could get a helicopter to us. Well, as we were in the descent, thinking about how we were going to ditch this F-14 Tomcat and all the procedures, and, and of course, You'd say, well, why didn't you just do a controlled ejection? Well, there was fuel everywhere, and the rocket off of my ejection seat would have likely exploded the airplane and killed uh, yeah. Craig. So that wasn't an option. As we were in the descent, I spotted an airfield that was not on my charts. That was in Dare County, uh, North Carolina. And we made a last-second decision to put that Tomcat down on a runway that was only 3,000 feet long. Uh, we needed 8,000 feet to land with the weight that we were at and the, and the tire pressures that we were carrying. So uh, in about a minute and a half, I gave Craig Larson a tutorial on how to do a short field landing. And uh, this is a guy that had only a couple hours in the airplane, and I trusted him to do it. And this was an uncontrolled airfield, uh, no tower. We just drove in there and put that airplane down. We stopped the airplane at 2,000 feet. Saved the airplane, wow. saved our lives, and I flew that airplane in combat to follow on. I could ask the most experienced pilot in the Navy to do that same landing, and maybe one in a hundred would get it, uh, where they wouldn't run the airplane off the runway or crash it or break a tire and spin, you know, spin into a whole bunch of uh, you know Cessnas that were there. Um, it was a, it was truly a one in a million landing, and Craig Larson and I will be friends for life over that. 
And for those who are listening, and I surprisingly have a number of listeners who are 18 to 24, what's one of the biggest lessons they can learn from that story? Well, you never know when your moment, yeah, you never know when your moment's going to come up. You know, as we were descending, and I explained to Craig, and and Craig at the time, I I think he was 24 years old. I mean, he had just graduated out of the Naval Academy. He's probably close to the time that you graduated, John. You guys might be classmates. Yeah. Um, uh, As we were in the descent, I had not asked Craig this important question. I said, after I explained him how to do this crazy landing, you know, we're going to land at 1,200 feet rate. Um, 1,200 feet per minute rate of descent. We're basically going to crash the airplane down. I want to have his feet on the brakes. He said, if you're going to blow one tire, you got to blow both. You know, we're going to make the anti-skid work, blah, blah, blah. I said, can you do this? And he said, I think so. I said, that's not a good enough answer. I said, can you do this? And he said, I can do it. And it was that moment I said, I know you can do it. And I put all of my faith, I put my life into his hands. I have no stick and throttle in the back of the Tomcat. He had all that. He had complete control. All I could do was talk to him, give him the knowledge that I had with at the time I had, you know, over 4,000 hours in the Tomcat and he did everything right. Now, maybe it was that little extra shot of belief from me as his commanding officer to him to say, you can do this. And he stepped up. So for those that are listening, I would just say, you got to be ready for your moment and don't shy from it. Take it. Okay. And along those lines, what is the relationship that you've had that you've learned from the most? Well, relationships matter. And if you're going to be successful in life, uh, relationships matter uh, everywhere. And relationships matter in a way that uh, it isn't about the relationships that you create for those that you work for. And not even just those that maybe have worked directly for you. It's all relationships. So one of the things I've learned is, you know, no matter who you come in contact with, you got to treat everybody uh, fairly with dignity and respect and never underestimate anybody. Uh, This is, uh, you know, you talk about young people listening in. Uh, My last couple of years while I was at the Naval Academy, you know, I, I always had a, you know, kind of a personal assistant or an aide. And these are very sharp young lieutenants. Uh, They usually come from all different designators. Uh, Lieutenant Kayla Barron was my aide uh, in 2017. She was a submarine officer, first generation of uh, women to go serve on submarines, a 2010 Naval Academy grad, systems engineer, cross-country runner. We were at an event at Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., a bunch of astronauts there telling stories. We get back in a car to go back to Annapolis, and she said, I just can't imagine how cool it would be to go into space. I mean, what do you have to do to become an astronaut? And, you know, this was my way of mentoring her, I said, Kayla, you know how you become an astronaut? And I know she was going to say, well, you got to go to test pilot school. You got to do this. You got to go fly. I said, no, you apply. You apply. She applied. 18,300 people applied that year for 12 astronaut spots. Lieutenant Kayla Barron is now an astronaut and she is on the Artemis team. She's going to go to the moon and she could someday go to Mars. And if if you had talked to Lieutenant Kayla Barron, you know, seven years ago, she was going to get out of the Navy and, and go do something completely different. And now she's part of NASA. I mean, again, you just can never, ever underestimate the strength and power of your dreams. And don't let anybody tell you what you can't do. It's all about what you can do. And that is all formed by relationships. You're absolutely correct. And fortunately, I've, I've had the opportunity to know a few different astronauts. One of them is my classmate, Chris Cassidy, who actually is going to be on uh, the show, the episode right before you. And then uh, I also have Wendy Lawrence coming on probably when the Naval Academy comes back in session in the fall. But both of them kind of tell the story in the same way. If they wouldn't have raised their hand, I think Wendy took a more directed path to get there. But Chris kind of, it it kind of just came into his uh, life and he took the opportunity when he had it. So at the Academy, we have a speaking series called the Forrestall Lecture. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is if you had the opportunity to go back and give midshipmen um, the Forrestall Lecture, what would your topic be? Well, I'm going to be uh, very honest here. The the last thing that I did as superintendent was I gave a Forrestall Lecture myself. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, it was not videotaped. Um, and I purposely would not allow that because I wanted to be 
my last moment with a brigade of midshipmen. And uh, it was one of the most fun things I've ever done. So uh, again, for your listeners, they probably have no idea. I was actually a contestant on The Price is Right as a lieutenant uh, when I was out at Miramar. And uh, it's just crazy. We still have a videotape of it. And again, I think I was 26 years old. I showed clips of Lieutenant Carter uh, with Bob Barker on The Price is Right on the huge screen inside Alumni Hall for the brigade to see what their superintendent looked like and what an absolutely idiot I was on stage <laughs> trying to uh, play for a car. The brigade lost their minds. They were having so much fun with it. And then instead of having the brigade stand to attention when I walked up onto the big stage, uh, while they were enjoying this, you know, 30 second clip of The Price is Right, everybody got silent and they said, Admiral Carter, come on down. So I ran in from behind the brigade, like I was going onto the stage of The Price is Right. And then I gave a 40 minute talk about how your life will never exactly turn out the way you plan it to be, because that's been my path. Every time a door closed, another door opened. I never really got any of my first choices. I know that sounds odd to look at where I've been, but they weren't, when I say that, they weren't the things that I envisioned myself doing. But I always said yes, even when the yes was hard and the yes included a lot of unknowns and went through that other door and just gave it my best. So that was the talk that I gave uh, to the brigade. And uh, I still hear from midshipmen that resonate with that. Uh, if I were given the opportunity to go back, I would do something similar on that theme, but now translate that to not only my military career, but what I've now learned in running this major complex organization called the University of Nebraska. And if you're an upcoming graduate, either from the Naval Academy, University of Nebraska, whatever university it may be, what is the biggest lesson or biggest advice you would give any of those students today? Well, the first thing I would tell them is uh, congratulations. You've lived through a period that we haven't seen in over a century in our country. So they've already survived and become a very resilient student uh, to get to uh, you know, a graduation or a diploma or a commission. Uh, so they've already had to live through you know, a period of unknowns, of which there are still some. And then the next thing I would tell them is uh, they're the future leaders of our nation, of our state, wherever their profession is going to take them. You know, it's not going to be folks like yourself or me. You know, my time and uh, being the best I ever was in my profession has long passed. It's now their turn. Uh, and they have to be excited about that. Well, great. Well, I'm going to end there. And thank you so much for providing all this amazing wisdom and for especially your 38 years of service to our country um, and for the countless lives that you've touched throughout your career at the War College, at the Naval Academy, and now your tenure at the University of Nebraska system. Thank you very much. Okay, John. Thanks. Thanks for the time. I am so thankful for Vice Admiral Carter coming on the show. And he unpacked so much that's going to be valuable to all my listeners or watchers of the YouTube channel. Thank you so much again, Admiral Carter. It was a true joy to have you on the show. And if you loved that content, then let me tell you about some of the past content that we've had that you can go back and check out. My interview the week before this was with Navy SEAL and NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy, where we talked about his life lessons around the importance of being present, not only in the times that matter most, but in all your daily activities. And prior to that, we had on Welch knowledge management and complexity science expert, Dave Snowden, who talked about how you can apply this can even framework and complexity science into your individual life. And prior to that, we had on singer songwriter, Juliana Sweeney, who talked about how she overcame tragedy in her mom's death. Make her passion being a musician and sharing her profits to charities that benefit causes that her mom loved. And before that, we had Naval Academy graduate and Marine Katie Higgins Cook, who went on to become the first female pilot in the famed Blue Angel Squadron. And we talk about both her journey of getting there and now her journey as she is transitioning out of the military and into civilian life. And prior to that, we had on guests such as Chef Sharon Guerin, culinary queen, who went from working five jobs to within 18 months, making multiple hundreds of thousands, pursuing her passion as a chef. Her mentor, Maria Mattarelli, who is an expert in using personal agility to ignite your life. West Point graduate, Hugh Campbell, 
who after the military became a serial entrepreneur in the Tampa Bay area, Mac Brazina, who's the human builder and so passionate about how you should use the other 23 hours of your life. Master Chief Tuck Williams, who talked about all his lessons learned in over 25 years of military service. Giles Stewart, who discusses how he found his passion in retirement and how that passion has now changed his life and so many more. Thank you as always for taking the time to watch the show and helping us become one of the top 1.5% of all podcasts listened to in the world. And if you'd like our help in helping you individually improve your performance or helping you on your own passion journey, please hit us up on passionstruck.com. And if you need someone to work with you in your business and you're trying to create a passion struck culture, whether that's in your function in a larger organization or in a small business or startup, we're here to help you as well. And until then, keep on igniting your passion journey. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Strike Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us.